is a line in the Gospel of Luke uh, which says, in your patience you will own your hearts. The, uh, the Greek word um, implies, for patience implies also constancy, perseverance is a, is a strong word. And um, um, hearts comes from psyche, and psyche means also life, mind, uh, soul. So, in your patience, you will become one uh, with your hearts. Um, I remember when I first uh, read this line, uh, being impressed uh, with it, being struck by it. You know, um, a word uh, like patience, which is a rather grey word, uh, in our normal um, way of talking, comes out uh, rather luminous and strong um, from this passage. Then, um, years later, I happened to read some important reflection on this topic by a um, Christian author, well-known Christian author, Henry Nouwen, and uh, a couple of two co-authors in a book which is called Compassion. He says, if we cannot be patient, we cannot be compassionate. We cannot be compassionate. If we ourselves are unable to suffer, we cannot suffer with others, which is the meaning of compassion. Now, in Dharma language, maybe we would say, if we are not open to our suffering, if we are not ready uh, for a direct experience of our suffering, there is not much hope for uh, an empathy for other people's suffering. And he continues, uh, underlying a couple of very crucial um, things. Patience is the capacity to see, hear, touch, taste and smell as fully as possible the inner and outer events of our lives. It is to enter our lives with open eyes, ears and hands so that we really know what is happening. Patience is an extremely difficult discipline precisely because it counteracts our unreflective impulse to flee or to fight. And then he concludes, Patience requires us to go beyond the choice between fleeing or fighting. It is the third and the most difficult way. It calls for discipline because it goes against the grain of our impulses. The Dharma practice in the scriptures is called patiloma, which means upstream. Patience involves staying with it, living it through, listen carefully to what presents itself to us here and now. 
Now, it, it, it seems to me that the uh, affinity uh, between this uh, description of what true patience is and uh, the um, uh, doctrine, the conception of, of, of awareness, mindfulness, sati in the Dharma, the affinity is, is very remarkable. So much so that uh, we could put the words together and uh, talk about patient, um, patient awareness, the same way we talk about non-judging non awareness, the same way we talk about equanimous awareness, um, affectionate awareness. In other words, it's a little help to uh, understand um, this crucial uh, concept and tool, um, so crucial in the teaching of the Buddha, mindfulness sati, um, uh, to understand it um, better and better. Um, what we need to understand, of course, is that these qualities, patience, equanimity, um, uh, caring, uh, non-judgmental uh, non spirit, these qualities are intrinsic to awareness. In other words, if they are not there, Awareness is not true awareness. Uh, awareness is not authentic awareness. You cannot have a judging awareness and things like that. It is not, it is not awareness. So, intrinsic qualities to uh, awareness. And patience is, true patience is one of these intrinsic qualities which define uh, the jewel which has been um, offered to us by the Buddha. Um, how can we define awareness? How can we define mindfulness, sati? Sati is the capacity uh, to connect with things in an intimate way and yet in a, a spirit of non-attachment and non-identification. So, um, caringly, and equanimously. Maybe from the point of view of ego, it's a contradiction, or is a paradox, or is frankly uh, ununderstandable. But uh, this is the um, definition. This is the, um, 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 the the structure of awareness, of mindfulness, of sati. And needless to say that this uh, developing a little bit of true sati, of true awareness, requires uh, an immensely patient training and a gradual refining of our understanding, of our insight. Uh, let's take an example. Suppose uh, we are sad. Suppose we become sad. Suppose... Uh, that our predominant emotion, that our predominant mind state is sadness. Now, what do we do usually and habitually? Our reaction uh, is a conditioned one and uh, ultimately conditioned by ignorance. Um, therefore, we know what happens. We, we uh, very frequently, although not necessarily, 
we get lost in sadness, we get identified with uh, sadness. Um, um, there are a number of variations. We can uh, fall into self-pity because of sadness, or we can fall into um, uh, irritation because of, uh, of sadness. Um, this way, uh, multiplying, multiplying the power of, of sadness, multiplying its strength, this is our um, habitual reaction. In a sense, we might say that uh, sadness, in all, in all these forms that we've just mentioned, <laughs> could, be, could be called unclean sadness, because it is loaded with, with, with layers of uh, uh, reactions and, and, and fears and, and, and uh, aversion. This is not pure, aware, uh, pure, pure sadness. Now, granted that the ultimate conditioning is ignorance, well, if we look a little bit closely, uh, what do we see that, that is more accessible to our um, immediate understanding? Uh, first of all, we see the power of habit, the, the very great power of habit. Mm, uh, the habit to react in a certain way, creates deep uh, ruts, deep, and, 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 and then it's not easy to come out of ancient and ingrained routines. And this is why it is crucial to, to, to develop a counter-habit, if we may say so, the practice, um, which means uh, uh, an adequate, a proportionate strength to counteract the um, the set, the 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 the, the all, all the the um, the negative habits, all the afflictions or the intoxicants um, which generate our fundamental suffering in living. But in addition to a general habit, I think if we look uh, if we look um, uh, closely. We, we see uh, something subtler, uh, which is maybe even more important. Um, and uh, this something subtler, what is it? It's the tendency to invest an enormous energy in the desire to get rid of sadness. It's often there. Not saying always. Sometimes we can be uh, relatively free from this tendency, or at other times we our tendency is to indulge in sadness. We don't want to get rid of sadness. We want more. But there are many other um, situations in in in, in which we can see very clearly how much energy, as I said, is invested in this uh, energy to get rid of sadness, of getting get rid of sadness. 
There are lots of energy are literally thrown into the desire uh, to get rid of sadness. Um, of course, you know, I'm not referring to small act of wisdom like getting together with, with a friend to talk to or going into nature. I'm referring to something compulsive, obsessive, uh, thinking, judging, reacting uh, about how to uh, get rid of, of this unpleasant feeling. Uh, we might as well talk about total non-acceptance of sadness. We might as well talk about um, aversion to, uh, to sadness. Lots of energy go there into this desire. Now, we, we, this desire is also understandable. We, we'll come back to it. But now we want to look at the problematic aspect of this desire. Remember the, uh, the teaching of the Buddha about the two arrows? Um, someone uh, is hit by one arrow uh, in a leg. And um, in, in a few words, the teaching is there is the developed individual which suffers only because of uh, the physical pain. It's just clean suffering. But there is uh, uh, another type of person, the worldling, uh, which suffers because of the second arrow. And the second arrow is all this strong mental reaction to the physical pain. There are many, we can conceive of an infinite numbers of, of uh, this uh, two-arrow teaching. Now, in this case, the first arrow is sadness, and the second arrow is the aversion to sadness. It is specified in a very clear way in that sutta, um, in that teaching of the Buddha, that the second arrow is the big problem. The second arrow uh, uh, strengthens the latent tendencies to aversion and also empowers the latent tendencies to attachment to uh, um, sense gratification as the only way out from suffering. So it nails us down more and more into aversion and attachment. Not the first arrow, the second arrow. Again, here we are talking about the second arrow in the form of this strong desire to get rid of an unpleasant state of mind. So, it is important that we understand that this desire, this energy to get rid of sadness when we are being sad is a much bigger problem than sadness itself. Why? Why so? Because this desire, this wish, this drive is an energy which keeps us separate from experiencing in a direct way the 
truth of, of sadness. It keeps us separate. This energy, this, this desire is in between, is, is, is in the way and uh, 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 prevents us from having a direct perception, from having a direct experience of what sadness is really like. Instead of um, having us opening up to uh, the sadness, because of this, of this, uh, of being haunted by this desire of getting rid of the unpleasant, we close down in front of our sadness. And this closing down is the second arrow, is the problem, and creates problem uh, endlessly. Because we've chosen just one example at random, but we could uh, multiply examples. Uh, um. So, what happens? That we stay trapped in our concept of sadness and in our reaction to this concept, but we don't have an alive, an alive experience of sadness or whatever it is, our mind state, because of this thing interfering, because of this thing being in the way of a direct experience, this movement against, this desire to get rid, it is energy, it's not, it's not uh, a thought, it's not um, a, a, a something irrelevant, it's very relevant. No wonder that the Buddha gave such a central place to desire fueled by ignorance as being the main cause for suffering in our life. And here we are talking about this, no less, no more. And, and the more um, um, everyday life, the more, the more um, uh, simple the examples, um, the better. Because um, I mean, it's obvious. We tend to, to uh, otherwise we tend to idealize dukkha. Uh, we tend to think of dukkha only in terms of um, dramatic uh, episodes, whereas dukkha is the, the fabric of our days. Uh, uh, until we start understanding dukkha, and that's the practice, and that's the, the the gift of the practice, the gift of the training that we are doing here. So, because because of this distancing energy, uh, we keep being. Uh, staying in our mind, in our imagination about sadness, in our concepts, in our in our uh, proliferations, and in our reaction to, to, to in our reaction in front of this concept, in in, in front of this imagination. Um, but where is again anywhere except the reality of sadness? 
of sadness. Anywhere except the truth of sadness. So, this is the frequent conditioned way of reacting in front of uh, so-called negative emotions. We might very well call this way, this conditioned way, the impatient way. Again, um, Henry Nouwen, whatever the nature of our impatience, we want to leave the physical or mental state in which we find ourselves and move to another less uncomfortable place. Essentially, impatience is experiencing the moment as empty, useless, meaningless. It is wanting to escape from the here and now as soon as possible. I don't think we have objection to this. Now, how would, how would it be like to have an awake, an aware, and a patient uh, uh, response to sadness or other kinds of uh, mental states? Now, this means, first of all, giving a lot of energy to awareness itself immediate awareness of what is happening. Hmm? If we do, we start to wake up. We start having a direct perception, uh, which is very different from reaction, uh, conceiving, uh, etc. Direct perception, direct perception of what is happening. Now, uh, this is a turning point and the key, uh, it seems to me, is an interest in, in turning more and more to awareness, is an interest in choosing awareness more and more, an interest which has become almost an instinct. Uh, let's take a, a, an instinct like hunger, for instance. Our mind and body know that um, without food, uh, we're going to die. So, we want food. We have this instinct. Now, as, as the practice develops, develops something, something similar starts to happen with, with awareness. With, we, we, we realize that the more... Uh, uh, awareness uh, uh, is available, the more, as I said, we choose awareness, the better we live. And uh, so we want more of it. It's just that simple. But as long as we do not realize that the more awareness, the better we live, this interest, which becomes almost an instinct, does not develop. Uh, and we start being in love with a concept. We like to talk about awareness and uh, speculating about awareness. And
and uh, reading all the readable about awareness. Period. Fortunately, there are retreats. As we were hinting um, last evening, when we something starts happens along this line, we start moving into something very, very different from what we called the primacy of thinking and doing, which mostly we have as individuals and as a culture. The, the priority goes to thinking and doing. But we are beginning to move in the field of contemplation. Contemplation is being aware, is, is, is looking in a, a, an unjudging and an equanimous, uh, in a caring way. So, uh, let us go back to our example. Sadness arises and we now want to encounter it. We want to experience it. We want to become intimate with it. We want a relationship with it because you know, life, life is being in, in relationship. So we, we, we want to change, to change our angle, to change our attitude uh, uh, with regard to mind state, to emotions. We start uh, having an intuition that, um, you know, the mind uh, um, is uh, the core of our life. And um, the mind guides, says Dhammapada, and all the rest follows. So, we want to have a different, a different experience. But, if we are possessed by the desire uh, to get rid of sadness, if we are possessed by this desire, how, how can we expect to have an encounter with, with sadness? If there is constantly this energy which takes us away from this reality, from this encounter. All the energy goes into this desire, in this pu- in this, into this pushing away. All the energy goes there. Where is energy available for our awareness? Where is it? So we, uh, we mean well, we want to be aware of this mind state, but if we don't see, if we don't have a, a, a vision, an insight into this, uh, into this fact that energy goes into the desire to get rid of it, um, forget it. 
it is as though we try to light up a, a, a flame in the midst of a strong wind. Awareness is constantly put out. Our efforts are vain. Again, we, we, we may be uh, very very determined, very motivated. We really want to be aware. We really want to have a, an experience of this. And, and, and we get more and more frustrated because uh, awareness disappears and disappears and disappears because all the energy goes in the opposite, in, in, into the opposite direction. So unless we, we see this, we uh, cannot begin to let go of this pushing away. But once we start seeing it, then we start letting it go. And then there is a chance for awareness to, to get kindled and stay. Of course, the most important thing when we start having this possibility of, uh, of direct experience, the most important thing is well known theoretically, uh, but practically speaking, it is not easy. This experience, this direct experience we are talking about, can happen only in the moment. Can happen only moment by moment. We know, we know it, and we don't know it. As soon as we are not in the present moment anymore, we are immediately uh, into thinking and judging and reacting. And we have to go back patiently, very patiently, in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. Otherwise, forget having this direct experience with what's happening inside ourselves. We'll be thinking about it, but the training is not about thinking. So, the idea is feeling directly in the moment what happens in our body and in our mind when we define ourselves as being sad. Sensations, thoughts, emotions, opening up to uh, what's happening moment uh, after moment. Now, if we... Um, no, there's something else which I would like to say. At first, this can hurt. It's a turning point. And when we start uh, learning uh, how to apply the practice and have some more direct experience of what is happening, it can hurt. Because usually we are wrapped up in so much thinking and reactivity that um, we feel much less. But if we uh, start letting go, 
all these layers, we are m- more sensitive, more raw. So it, uh, the, at least the first impact can be painful. But if we keep staying there, if we keep um, sustaining the practice, then um, pain, the painfulness, uh, is bound to change. The negative emotions we're talking about, once uh, stripped from layers of reactivity and thinking and, ju- and judging, uh, become become different. And they are more pure. We we said clean sadness. Uh, they more and more become less threatening, less painful. Our relationship um, changes. Our mode uh, is deeply different from before. We are led by an interest which is almost an instinct to be with what is there. And we want to learn more to be with what is there. Because we see and hear patience, uh, again, needs to be mentioned, that we can slide back very easily and regress into very primitive and primordial modes where uh, uh, reactivity seems the only reasonable uh, thing. And uh, we are not interested in direct experience and things like that. A whole ideology can arise in a matter of seconds. (laughs) And we believe it. We believe it completely. This is uh, what the scriptures call the, the, the power of avicca, the power of ignorance. It's not, it's not ignorance um, in, in, uh, in the Dharma, in the Dharma language. It's not the absence of something, something very active. And again, it takes a lot of patience to deal with all the, uh, the ignorance that we, we, we carry with us. So, patient, patient contemplation, affectionate contemplation uh, of our sadness. You know, a wave of sadness, just one more invitation to practice contemplation first instead of practicing reactivity first, judging first, uh, talking first, and, and uh, this way we have an invitation to cultivate the primacy of contemplation as opposed to the primacy of thinking and uh, doing. When contemplation, when the uh, affectionate awareness 
of whatever is there starts being a real value, a real central value in our lives, a real priority in our lives, something very interesting happens. And it is that we finally feel that we are beginning to have a reliable source for right thought, for right action, for right word. But contemplation comes first. And I don't mean contemplation in, in any big spiritual way. Contemplating what is there. Moment uh, after moment. You know, this is upstream. This is patiloma. Because uh, we react first. We don't contemplate first. Uh, so it takes uh, re-education. Practice is a re-education, a realignment, a revolution. is not is not an excessive word. It is an inner revolution. It's got to be an inner revolution without much noise. So, in our patience, in our patient awareness in our patient contemplation, we can become one with our hearts. We can become at peace with our hearts. I would like to, um, to mention a contribution by a Dharma teacher in the Zen tradition, um, American, Sherry Huber, she says, exploring exactly what it means to be tired can reveal the part of the personality that holds in place a belief about tiredness. What is it about being tired that I don't like? What are my underlying beliefs about it? That I'm going to, fo to fall over? That I'm going to die? And what are the implications in my life of holding such beliefs? How do those beliefs limit me? Someone told me about doing a simple task that involved just two movements and what a joyful experience it was. She realized that it was joyful because her attention was fully focused on what she was doing. Now, what will happen if we focused our attention on the feeling we label tired? We might have the same sort of joyful experience simply by being absolutely present to the sensations of the body. And that in itself might generate energy. It's an interesting side effect. In any case, without a label, those sensations would no longer be perceived as tiredness. And then I, I, I sum it up. I, I, if we keep contemplating, we find out that uh, the crucial problem is a kind of a knot inside our body, and that knot is our resistance to what is happening. The problem, again, is not tiredness, 
is resistance to tiredness. Do we know it? Yes and no. I would also like to mention something about about my experience. Um, during the year, I uh, happened to teach uh, meditation classes on uh, uh, Monday night and on uh, Tuesday night. So Monday night, Tuesday night means going to bed late. If I go to bed late on Wednesday night and on Thursday night as well, um, what is in store is a very off-centered Friday. And um, I've studied it since uh, it's not happened only once. Um, so there is fatigue and there is the feeling of being off-center. And uh, I've, noticed, I've noticed that what arises is a subtle way of, of um, undermining the practice. Because this voice uh, in me says, see, you should be more careful. You should be uh, more disciplined. Uh, this way uh, you could practice in a much better way. Uh, but my practice is fatigue in that moment. This is thinking. If I had been more careful, I would be... La, 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 la. So this, this is thinking away in order to avoid what is there. And what is there is fatigue and off-centeredness. So once, once I wake up to this fact, because I can't forget, you know, a couple of weeks go by, the same phenomenon happens, and here I am again telling myself, you should be more careful and all that. And then, again, fortunately, I wake up and I start practicing on fatigue. This means that instead of battling and resisting instead of complaining I open up to what is there I see the contraction of fatigue bodily and mental I see some attachment to what might bring some relief but if I keep staying there at times something nice happens and this that under this mental movement of fatigue, there is something peaceful. But if I hadn't stopped, I wouldn't have seen, I wouldn't have touched that peaceful uh, area. So fatigue is unpleasant, but fatigue in itself is not a problem. The resistance to fatigue is a problem. The self-judging because of fatigue is the problem. It's not a problem. Otherwise, there will be no possibility of touching peace, touching spaciousness. That is the proof that fatigue is not a problem. That mind states in itself, in themselves, are not a problem. Is the way we deal with them that is a problem. The second arrow is the problem. 
not the first arrow, fatigue. Um, it's interesting also, I think, to, 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 to think of what happens when we are instead uh, full of energy and well-being. Very easily what happens is that we start channeling that well-being into projects, thinking, into some immediate, uh, useful, helpful action. Because these are the values. This way our well-being is not wasted. We've invested it in good thoughts and in good actions. Now, well-being is a beautiful thing. There is no inherent uh, shortcoming in well-being. The problem is in our excited reaction to well-being. The problem is our not even conceiving of contemplating well-being. Are you kidding? Contemplating (laughs) well-being. Let's enjoy well-being. You don't contemplate well-being. Why? Awareness of what is there. Now, well-being is there. Why not contemplate well-being? And what happens is that even more easily we access some peaceful state through the contemplation of well-being. And once again, we have the distinct impression that we are touching the most reliable source right action, right thought, right speech. Instead of, you know, acting on our well-being. Just uh, one last word. We, we, um, we said that... Um, the desire for a negative state to go away is very problematic because it's an energy that keeps us away from experiencing in a direct way what is there. But uh, we said also that it is understandable. Why it is understandable? Well, it is an expression. You know, wanting to get rid of sadness, it is an expression of the universal aspiration to happiness. But unfortunately, uh, it is distorted uh, and as we can see again and again it doesn't bring happiness so uh, we should remember that um, one of the major aims of our practice is to purify uh, this kind of desires so that the desire for happiness the aspiration for happiness can blossom in the right way, uh, more and more purified uh, from from ignorance. Uh, now, these reflections, to me, uh, are important in order to help us not being judgmental 
in front of our attachments and our aversions and in front of other people's attachments and aversions. Because uh, underneath those attachments and aversions there is a desire for happiness. Unfortunately, it's distorted. At times, incredibly distorted. But um, the, 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 the origin is the same for all beings, for all sentient beings. And if we get in touch with what is common, um, our chances to develop understanding and compassion and to realize uh, these qualities which have been called the two wings to enlightenment um, increase. Thank you. Let's sit for a few seconds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.